We're back here uh, to the Neil Haley Show and my co-host Juan Aliman of the 80s Hours with me. Juan, how are you? And we're going to have a great guest today. Yes. Hi, Neil. I'm doing fine. I'm excited to be talking to this person. Uh, they are a blues rock singer, songwriter, uh, has been active since the 80s. And we're talking about Deborah Bonham. Good morning, Deborah. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you, Juan. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Absolutely, Deborah. We're excited to have you. And Juan has some amazing questions. So go ahead, Juan. All right. Deborah. Now, one of the things that I noticed is that, of course, you know, one of the things, as soon as somebody looks at your name, they say, Bonham. Yeah. That Bonham, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now... You are the you are the younger sister of uh, John Bonham, of course, of Led Zeppelin fame. Yeah. And you were encouraged to get in the music by. Uh, was it Robert Plant that encouraged you? No, I, I hustled him. <laughs> That's a bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he sort of pointed me in the right direction and told me to get out on the stage and earn my earn my pay my dues, really. Um, and I, I did go around with my nephew, Jason, and, you know, ring him up and say, can we come around to your studio? <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, yeah, he was, he, was, he was great. He pointed me in the right direction, let's say. What did John think when you told him you want to be a musician? What was well, thing? you know, I was still at school. So um, John was, uh, I, I don't think he would have really entertained the idea. I remember telling him once when I was about 16, 15, that I wanted to be a singer. And he just looked at me with, with dread, you know, that sort of not my kid sister in this industry, you know. Um, I think he thought I was going to be a vet or a lawyer or something. So, uh, <laughs> so I stayed on at school and I was still at school when he passed away, unfortunately. I, was, uh, I stayed on at school. But I was already, you know, I, I, was, doing, I was doing music anyway. But um, I think now... Uh, now that I've come through it all and all these years have passed by, I, he would have, uh, I'm, I'm sure he would have got up and played with us. You know, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we like the same music. I, all the music I loved, I got from him really. So, yeah. That's beautiful. Now you've toured with the likes of Van Halen, Alana Miles, um, Foreigner, Paul Rogers. Uh, who were some of your favorites when you were touring uh, to share the stage with? That's just such an unfair question. <laughs> I mean, I'm not gonna tell you. <laughs> I'm not gonna tell you. They were all great. I mean, Van Halen, no, I, I just got up with them um, at, a, at, a, at a launch of their album, actually. I was in the audience and Peter Bullock, our, our guitarist and my husband, um, went over to see them and uh, told Sammy Hagar that John Bonham's kid sister was in the audience. And I'd actually gone to the ladies' toilets and I just heard him shout out, you know, Deborah Bonham's here, come on, get up and sing. And I was like, oh, my good grief. Um, and I didn't, we did rock and roll Led Zeppelin and I didn't let Eddie Van Halen do a guitar solo. He was bent down in front of me on his knees at one point going, let me do the solo. <laughs> and every time I looked at him, I went, oh, my God, it's Eddie Van Halen. And I just kept it singing. So, <laughs> yeah, I was a bit uncool. <laughs> But um, out of the other, I mean, oh yeah, I've been blessed, you know. I've I've, I've played with, I've I've been on stage with some of the greatest, you know, including Robert Plant, um, 
Paul Rogers, you know, um, I got up with Peter Frampton and Humble Pie and uh, Pete, Peter, guitarist out of the, the Bottom Bullet Band, has played with Paul Rogers. He's backed him on tour, you know. He stepped up as uh, uh, in the in the sort of not in the Paul Kossoff taking over, but when Paul wanted to do Paul Rogers wanted to do uh, his free music, Pete uh, got the job, and so yeah, we've been really blessed. And all of them, I mean, I've never met anybody who's not been generous and and, and beautiful, you know. So, and I honestly mean that. I think the only one that Pete played with, and I haven't, is Van Morrison, who was a, oh, bit, wow. a bit sticky. Oh, okay. <laughs> just, just sort of looked at Pete, you know, and gave him this look. <laughs> but they're both Belfast guys, you know, they're both Northern Irish. So what do you expect? <laughs> and, that, and that learning experience that you went through in this process, what do you, who do you think you learned from the most in your career? Who, who did I learn from the most? Mm -hmm. oh, um, I mean, I would definitely say my, my both... Uh, I mean, both my brothers for the, the amount of music and my parents for the amount of music that I was um, exposed to, you know, I, I listened to some of the greats. And so I learned so much from them and then from, from John. And I guess it would be, be Robert and, uh, you know, I, I mean, we're very close. So I've always, I've always watched him and watched his career since Led Zeppelin, which has been phenomenal. But Paul Rogers and I mean all these guys, Steve Marriott, um, Ann Peebles. I had the joy of playing with Ann Peebles, and I think all of these people, they mean it. You know, there's no mm -hmm. there's no halfway house with these guys. When they go on stage, they mean it, and it's from the heart, and it's it's from the soul, and 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 that's something that 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 I've learned. You know, if you're going to go out there and do it, you better do it like you mean it. Wow, um, that's. Um... I think it's really important that artists who express themselves like that, who write their music, who perform their music, uh, do push forward and say, you know, if you're going to go out there, give it your all. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you don't believe it, you, you haven't got a hope in hell of convincing anybody else. Mm -hmm. So you've really got to mean what you're doing and believe in what you're doing, you know. I mean, that it takes... It takes time and it takes guts and you know you've just got to you've got to stick with it if you really do believe what you're doing you'll convince other people oh wow now coming up what do you have uh coming up i think in april you have an album coming up yeah this a uh, new album bon and bullock and it's a uh, it's uh, an album 13 tracks of of some obscure and some classic covers. I decided that it was time to do like a, a a project rooted in the blues of some of the great songs that I absolutely love. And I wanted to do it as Bonham Bullock and not as um, just Deborah Bonham band because we've been a band for so long and it is such a butt kicking live band. And it, it really is a, a great band. Peter, Peter Bullock's an amazing guitarist. And, um, and I didn't want people to think, oh, it's just a girl singer with an acoustic guitar because we're anything but that, you know. So I just thought now's the time, you know, at this late stage, it was like, no, I want it to be Bon and Bullock. So the, uh, we've made this album. I produced it. Um, it's out on Quarter Valley Records, which is a fantastic uh, Grammy Award winning uh, 
independent label in California that have just been so supportive and let us let us be what we want to be musically. I think that was the main thing about um, Bruce Corto and, and Mike Card and Nina, Nina Miller, whose brother's Buddy Miller, by the way. And uh, and so, yeah, the album comes out April 29th and we're, we're really excited about it. Really, really excited. It sounds like you're very excited about it. And it's just something that, you know, anytime an album comes out, what do you do in preparing for it? You do interviews like today. What yeah, other things do you do to try to get get out get that album out there? What do you yourself? Yeah, yeah I mean we've 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 um, done a couple of shows already, and we've been playing the new the new material, and it's gone down a storm, and that's been exciting in itself. You know, after the pandemic, being able to get out on stage and then play new material. It's just been great. I, I, I'd forgotten how much I really missed it until I saw the guys. We're pretty much like a family. We've been together for so long. And well, uh, Pete's my husband, so he is family, I suppose. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're just getting out there, playing the stuff and doing, doing interviews like today, as you say. And, um, yeah, it's exciting. It's and it's great that it's exciting because it's been such such a wretched couple of years, hasn't it, for everyone? And there's so much yeah. bad news around all the time. I just feel like oh, I just desperately want to get out and play and just play or, and go and see live bands as well. That's what I want to go and do and listen to great music and try and get back to where we were, you know, before wars broke out and pandemics, you know. <laughs> so. Now, being uh, with a band as long as you have been, uh, as far as like together, yeah. uh, it's funny that you mention it's like family. You know, Pete, of course, is your husband, but um, <clears throat> the band as a core, how long have has it been since 85? The, the um, I've, I've known Ian, the bass player, since then, yes. Um, you know, we were, in fact, we were even younger than that. Ian and I were in our teens. Ian Rowley on bass. Um, so we've been together years and years. And, and then um, I met Pete in, 90, in 1990. And we immediately joined a band, to, uh, you know, formed a band together. And then the keyboard player has been 23 years. And the drummer is a new guy. He's 14 years. <laughs> He's a new guy. <laughs> and he played, I mean, the drummer, uh, Richard Newman, he, his dad is um, uh, Tony Newman. He, he was with Sounds Incorporated and David Bowie hmm. as a drummer. Oh, wow. And uh, Richard played in his own right. He's an amazing drummer. And he played with Steve Marriott and Rory Gallagher. So uh, he joined us. And, yeah, um, and here we still are, you know, through thick and thin. We, we've managed to, to keep going. And, and it's been great, you know, and not seeing them during the pandemic pandemic was was tough mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, back together so what keeps the success of not breaking up the band i guess your husband's one reason but what about no they just do what i tell them to do <laughs> <laughs> they don't argue oh i'd like to say that honestly i must be dreaming because because they, they argue no keep it i think because we all respect each other you know um, we respect our talents. I mean, everyone in their own right are great players and, and great people. And so we can, we can have a fight, you know, we can argue and, you know, 10 minutes, half an hour later, we're best mates again. So it's sort of, 
it's a, a bit like brothers and family, yeah. I think that's important, especially in the dynamic of a band. Um, and I listened to several of your songs and you guys sound great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so. I, I listened to some of the live stuff and wow, the way you command an audience, how long does it take as far as for confidence for you to stand in front of an audience and be able to command them like that? Do you know, I, I don't know. Um, I think, I think as you get older and, and you naturally become, become more confident in what you're doing, mm -hmm. um, certainly in the, in the very early days, um, I, I probably wasn't like that, but I had great teachers, you know. I, I, I watched Aretha Franklin, I watched Janis Joplin, I watched Paul Rogers and Robert Plant and Steve Marriott and, and Otis Redding. And all, I, I watched all these great people um, perform. And, and, you know, again, you've, you've just got to mean it because if you don't, nobody's going to believe you. So I guess it's just been years of constantly watching these guys and, and seeing that how they got lost in the moment. Um, if you watch Janice, she's completely in, in the zone, you know, when she's singing oh, yes. and that's important. And for that, you need a great band because if the, if, you know, if I've, before I met Pete and we got our band together um, in maybe some other bands earlier on, if I didn't feel it on the stage, then it's, you know, I, I'm not very good at, at pretending, you know, it's got to move, the music's got to move me. And sometimes I've been on the stage with this band, with Bon and Bullock, and, um, and I forgot to sing because I'm so grooving away to what they're doing, you know, and I'm absolutely loving what they're doing. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, I'm, I'm going to sing, you know. <laughs> I'm so not here I, as a fan today. I'm here to sing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just want to. Yeah, quite often I think, oh, I just want to go and watch you guys, which I got the pleasure of doing when Paul Rogers uh, took them to to back him, and it was fantastic. You know, watching them, watching what they could do, and that so, command, yeah. yeah, and commanding that audience, it just got to feel right, right? It's what you do. It's what you love, and yeah, no, the more you do it the more you understand your audience, the more you understand how to command people's attention. And yeah, it doesn't absolutely. happen overnight. So for, for young musicians out there, what do you think is the first thing they really need to look at when they're performing? Well, I, I would just say what, I, what I've said really is they've got to believe what they're doing. Mm. They've got to believe in what they're actually doing and, and love the music that they're trying to put across. Because I think... If you're on stage and you're loving it and an audience can see that you're loving it and that and you're loving it, the band playing it um, and uh, the music that you're doing, people pick up on that vibe. Mm -hmm. And then once people start to pick up on that vibe, then you can reach out to them. You know, you can do that. that it does take it's a stagecraft and sometimes it takes a while to 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 know that somebody is picking up on what you're playing, but you can see it in a lot in the audience faces. Sometimes, you know, I, I try not to look too much. I'm just getting into the moment mis myself and enjoying, enjoying us on stage. But um, I can look, see somebody's face and I, you can just see that they're, they're, they're getting it. And when that happens, you're like, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, and I think that that, 
that's really all you can do. You've just got to really love it on the stage yourself and love the music that you're performing. Um, yeah. And support of the album coming up, do you have any North American tour dates? No, not yet. Um, we've been, uh, we're desperately waiting um, to see how the, you know, things are going to open up. Mm -hmm. And we haven't got a, um, a, an agent over there yet. So we're sort of saying to everybody, you know, if you, if you love what you hear, bring us over. <laughs> we'll, we'll come. We're desperate to get out there. So that's what we're doing at the moment, trying to see how it's going to open up and finding the right agents to, to bring us out there. Biggest um, crowd you, there you go. So I was going to ask you, biggest crowd you've ever played in front of? Ah, um, wow. I'm just trying to think. I would probably think it was the Stars Align um, uh, US tour in 2018. That was that was scary uh, because it was big amphitheaters. Paul Rogers was playing, Jeff Beck and Ann Wilson, and I was opening up. And, and my band, the Bon and Bullet band, were were playing with Paul Rogers. So I went on just my voice and my old friend uh, from when we were teens. Ian Hatton, who had joined, was in a band with my nephew Jason Bonham for a while, called Bonham, and had some great success in America. But I asked him if he'd come and play guitar for me, you know, for this tour. And he said, yeah, sure. And I, he said, what are we going to do? And I said, just me singing and you playing guitar. And he said, oh, yeah, what sort of venues? And I went, um, well, they're sort of amphitheaters. So he walked out with his guitar with mega, mega stage. And there's just us two little dots and just surrounded by, you know, people. And it worked. It worked. They were so fantastic to us. We had a standing ovations and people cheering and it was really great. So, yeah, can't wait to get back out there. Now, as far as um, music that you like to listen to. Yeah. Uh, I do an 80s show. OK. So what are some of your favorite 80s artists? And you don't have to say, oh, this is my favorite. I'm not going to put you on the spot. But what, what is some of the kind of music that if uh, you had a jukebox, you would play at home, 80s? From, from the 80s? Mm -hmm. I mean, I can tell you straight away, one of, the, one of the 80s bands that I absolutely love is a band called Talk Talk. I don't know if how big they were over in, a, in the States, but um, I absolutely loved Talk Talk, Mark, Mark Hollis, um, the singer, songwriters, uh, they were fantastic. Color of Spring, their album. They would be my 80s band, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, if I, if I was at home playing uh, other, you know, if I'm just playing music, I tend to be a little bit earlier, 60s and 70s, really. Um, okay. So uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big Little Feet fan. I love Little Feet. I love... Um, I love uh, North. I love American rock as well. I love Boston and and all those bands. So you know, I can be seen sometimes screaming my head off to more than a feeling, more than once. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bob Seger, the whole lot. It all comes out if we're having a little party or something. You know, um, and I love uh, all the Motown, the Spinners. You know, Rubber Band Man, and uh, I love the OJ's. Uh, all of that. So. Um, Four tops. And so that's my sort of uh, Crosby, Sills and Nash. I mean, I've got a complete yeah, eclectic mix of music. That's fantastic. I have a question <laughs> on Led Zeppelin, because again, I saw the documentary that was on, I forget, I think it was on Reels. Yeah. Do you feel the way the band is remembered, especially, you know, 
because of your brother and everything is remembered in the right way, Zeppelin, or you think it's sometimes they're misunderstood? I think it's the right way, uh, uh, you know, for the for the majority of time. I mean, I think people get so hung up about the hedonistic lifestyle and what Zeppelin were all about. That, and I think people love to think that they were these, you know, these these warriors going out there, uh, goodness knows what. But but actually, it's all about the music. And um, for me, that's Led Zeppelin. It's um, I think the all the other stuff gets a bit tiresome but um musically i just don't think it, 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 they're just the most phenomenal band i mean it was a total privilege growing up with that music um the most unbelievable band i mean it changed my world when i first saw them and i was very young when i first saw them play and the other worldliness about them the way they i mean the way they captured an audience from the minute they walked on stage you know all four of them you, people just had their mouths open, you know, it was like, oh my goodness, what is this? And you were instantly transported somewhere else, you know, you were in this world, anything could have been going on outside, exactly. but you were in this place watching Led Zeppelin and you were just away on another planet. So yeah, I, I'd like to think that that's what they'll be remembered for, you certainly. Okay. I definitely remember them for the music. Um, I, um, I grew up, listening to bands like Led Zeppelin, mm -hmm. um, like Pink Floyd. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's another one. Love Pink Floyd. Uh, ELO. Yeah. Uh, I just saw um, Jeff Lynn's ELO a couple of years ago when they were touring here in Washington State, and I was just taken aback by how good the, just the music is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I loved what Jeff Lynne did with Tom Petty as well. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, absolutely, because I'm, I'm a big Tom Petty fan as well. So I, I really in, enjoyed what Jeff did. But ELO, they did some incredible shows as well that took the, took the um, audience on a, on a ride, you know. I mean, fantastic, yeah. I definitely agree with that. Um... All right, so we're kind of running out of time. The thing I wanted to ask is best place where we can, you know, listen to the album and stuff and go. Where can we go, Deborah? Well, um, there's our website, which is Um It's will be for sale on all the usual platforms. You know, it's it's coming out on Quarto Valley Records, so their website will say where it can be bought. Um, and I just hope everybody plays it and people hear it and and enjoy it and we get to come over there because that's what we want to do we want to come and play live so it will be deborahbonham.com and facebook uh, facebook is deborah bonham and twitter as well all right and one you can find information on you where yes you can go to pictureperfectpodcast.com i have two different podcasts you can go there and find out about each of those uh we'll Fantastic. be featuring this uh interview on the 80s hour uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Deborah, and to learn more about you. And, oh, thank uh, you. Thank you very much. You have an amazing voice. Yes. Thank you so Thanks much. For it. And it's definitely uh, the information you're able to bring. Uh, it's great as well to learn some of the things the artist and this also talk Led Zeppelin. So we appreciate you coming by and best of luck. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Both of you. You're welcome. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome the program Caregiver Dave and Sandy. Dave, how are you? What's going on? 
Hey, I'm doing good. Just enjoying the sunshine here in Southern California <laughs> in my convertible because I couldn't be in my office today. Hey, it's good. It's good to be out of the office. That's for sure. And yeah, the sunshine, get that vitamin D, you know. And, and one of the things I've learned, you know, in my life and our guest today is going to talk about her book, but also about her career in fashion is, you know, not really knowing what the right fashion things are at 49. I'm learning that process and <laughs> trying to look at what works and what doesn't work. So I'm excited to welcome Morgan Victoria West. Uh, she's a fashion writer and also author. Victoria, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? Fantastic. So tell me about that journey. How did that journey in fashion start getting involved in writing in fashion and stuff? I have always been uh, passionate about fashion and I started my first fashion blog in 2010. At the time I was on maternity leave. So I had a little bit of a uh, free time on my hands because my baby was lucky me was very quiet so um um i i had always been passionate about fashion and all things fashion and i also had a passion for writing so i decided to combine my two passions fashion and writing so i started that fashion blog which was called fashion style beauty and more dot blogspot.com which later became victoria was.net and uh, I attended the fashion scene in Toronto for about 10 years, between 2010 and 2020. Uh, fashion events, uh, Toronto Fashion Week, um, different uh, collection launches, meetings with designers, interviewing designers, uh, attending their fashion shows, uh, and TIFF, uh, many TIFF-related events, and so on. And um, I did that for 10 years. Meanwhile, I also I also published my first book, uh, a collection of essays and interviews uh, about fashion. I, I could show it to you. I have it right here. So this was my first book, which is called Beats of Fashion, and I published it in 2013. And it's a collection of um, uh, fashion essays and interviews that I had written by that time between 2010 and 2013, so for three years, and then I combined them in a book. I continued working about fashion up until 2020 when Corona happened and things slowed down uh, for everyone, everywhere, including the fashion scene in Toronto. So uh, for the past 10 years, I uh, sorry, for the past two years during Corona, uh, I didn't really attend any more fashion events. I worked mainly from home. Um, the fashion scene on, uh, in Toronto uh, has been very quiet during these past two years. Uh, so I switched my attention to poetry. Uh, I haven't, since I haven't attended any more fashion events than no more fashion writing uh, or very little. Um, and um, uh, I felt inspired by uh, um, poetry and other poets' works. I started reading poetry in late 2020 or second part of the year 2020, which also inspired to start writing poetry myself. And uh, what continued for me was um, writing my second book, Poetry This Time, and it's called Sa uh, Sunset in Toronto. It's a collection of 100 poems it, uh, which um, it took me one year to write it. I started writing it in the fall of 2020 and I completed the manuscript in August, 2021. And then for the next couple of months, 
I worked on editing and proofreading the book and all of that. And I published it in October 2021. So this is my newest book, Sunset in Toronto. And um, uh, for uh, as of now, I focus my attention on poetry more than fashion. Uh, I'm working on promoting the book. I want to let people know about it. I want to share it with the world. And this is how it has been for me for the past 12 years. Wow, you're a poet. So yeah. you have an enchanting accent. Where is that from? It's from Eastern Europe. My background uh, is Romanian. Yes, I was going to say Ukraine. <laughs> well, close, but no. It, it is similar, though, so uh, I understand why you would say that. It is similar so how, does, here. how does a young girl from Eastern Europe just even get into all of this? I know you shared a very long story. How did it all start? From where? Um, well, I, I moved to Toronto in 2006. And, okay. um, how old were you in 2006? I was 28. Okay. So, uh, and my, my son was not born uh, at the time yet. He was born in the city of Toronto three years later. And um, uh, I, I tried to make myself accustomed to the scene here in the big city, which is a beautiful city. And I fell in love with it instantly from my very first few days when I arrived here. Um, and Toronto being a, a week with a strong fashion scene uh, and essentially the, the largest fashion hub in in Canada I felt very attracted to it so uh, I tried to make my way into it by um, um, trying to um, connect with people in the fashion world uh, attending events and the fact that I started writing my fashion blog was a really good way to start all of this and as I was writing it and as, as I was building up my uh, community on my online community on the blog, I also started meeting uh, uh, many people uh, on the fashion scene and attending all those events. And it, it uh, to answer your question, how did it all start? It started like little by little. Uh, uh -huh. Post about uh, fashion or the, the, the first few posts on my blog, then I started being contacted by various professionals uh, uh, in the fashion industry from Toronto, I started meeting uh, new people, uh, and every event was leading to the next one. And um, uh, it was a pretty exciting. Time. When did you realize? That, when did you realize that you were a poet? Two years ago, during COVID, during it Corona, just, it just came out of you. You had no idea it was in you. It's true. It's true. And you know, funny thing that you mentioned that I would like to address that as well. For the longest time, I never thought of myself as a poet. I always thought of myself as a prose writer. And hence my, uh, my, my blogging, my essays, my interviews, my uh, book reviews. Uh, I always envision myself as a prose writer. And yet, so poetry came to me almost out so what, what activity what activity do you recommend for people that maybe they have the gift inside of them that they don't realize it's there? What 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 actually brought it out in you? So uh, reading poetry is what brought it out in me. Um, uh, I also uh, spent more time uh, this uh, online, like especially Instagram, discovering new voices, 
because I wanted to to discover new poets and their works. So uh, Instagram was a great source for that. And uh, I started um, uh, uh, reading poetry, which inspired me to write poetry myself. I found inspiration in other poets' works, like Rupi Kaur, uh, Amanda Lovelace, Courtney mm. Pepernell, and other poets. Um, I love their work. I read pretty much all of their books, everything that they have published so far. And uh, that was a great source of inspiration to, for me. So I definitely recommend that to other people. Uh, if they want to find them in, in them, then look for it where other people found it. And the reading poetry is a great way to feel inspired writing poetry. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Okay, so in the, the fashion industry, the experience in blogging, did you have, were you interested in fashion in Eastern, Eastern Europe or is that something you started picking up in Toronto? Yes, I did, but only at a personal level. I didn't really have any, uh, uh, any great opportunities or uh, any outstanding opportunities in Eastern Europe to, to experience that other than at a personal level. Um, I just liked to dress up. I liked to play fashion. I liked to play trends, but Pretty much that was all. And um, uh, the, um, let's say the influence and the, um, uh, the, the sources of inspiration that I would find for my personal style around me, but not much more than that. So I, I truly started picking up uh, talking about the, the fashion industry itself and the people who work in here and the, the people who, who are making it. Yeah. So. It, yeah. it's, it was here. It happened for me here. So interesting. And what do you think about fashion in some way, ways, especially where fashion is going? What kind of fat? So what what kind of fashion were you covering? And I guess with COVID, how did the fashion industry survive? Well, um, you know, what I think about it is that one way for the fashion to survive is to become more sustainable. Um, and to, to, to use its resources better and more consciously than it has been before. Um, and I would like to mention something here. So during COVID, I was reading some fashion magazines like Harper Bazaars. And um, I remember one particular story and probably there were more than one, not just one. When they turn, when the editors of the magazine turn their attention to what's happening now in the, in the fashion industry in the context of COVID. And the main thing that's happening, that's happening is that uh, sustainability is the way out of it. Um, uh, the, the, the supply chains were broken. Designers couldn't get their material and their resources the same way as before. So many of them had to turn to, to their back stocks and their back list and their back supplies in order to continue to create. So no more, no more fabrics from, uh, I'm sorry? I'm sorry for interrupting. I'm, I'm sure that uh, affected the uh, direction of fashion, that maybe fashion took a different direction just because of COVID. It's true. It's true. So, uh, and maybe that's a good thing. So maybe we really needed such a big shake like Corona in order to realize that it should be more sustainable and more conscious about our resources. Uh, and me personally, um, 
one of the causes of COVID, in my opinion, is that we have been kind of reckless of our natural resources. And that's one of the things that, that brought us yeah. and br brought us COVID. So uh, I, I really, I, I was happy to see this uh, interest and, um, and uh, more care placed into how we source our materials in order mm. to create fashion from now on and the direction where fashion is going. Sustainability is definitely the way. So uh, I was happy to see uh, that change. And it, it's a change that happens uh, at a wide level. So it's not just a, a few talks here and there, but uh, the, the, the international community understands now how important it is to be more sustainable in everything we do, including fashion. That's uh, and so and so important uh, to look at that, especially with the resources that are out there and things that are wasted in the fashion industry that can now be sustainable. So you're seeing more and more companies going that route and they're the ones that are surviving in the fashion industry, right? Because people are so conscious of these things now, working with, working with companies that have a good mission statement or providing good things. So they're the ones that are starting to really blow up in the fashion industry, right? Those companies that are choosing to do it, those designers that are choosing to do it then, right? That's right, yes, yes. <laughs> wow, so what, um, what is in store for the future with you? Uh, got any plans you can share? Um, yes, I, uh, um, since I published my uh, second book, Sunset in Toronto, I have been focusing on two things. First one was promoting it and uh, working on um, uh, spreading the word about it, of, uh, working on sharing it with the public. And uh, also I am starting to think about what I would like to, what I would like my next book to be because I definitely want to continue writing and uh, I would like this book not to be my last one. So uh, I have played with a few ideas this past few months about what my next book should be. I haven't uh, decided 100% yet, but one of the ideas I lean to is uh, another book of poetry. And also I would like to, I would like my next book of poetry to be a little bit more, um, uh, uh, um, to, ha to have a, um, um, a, a team rather than uh, uh, a number of teams or like, I would like it to be more um, focused on a certain topic or uh, a certain thing, so I'm still working on that uh, because my current uh, book um, has uh, includes poems uh, about a number of things, and uh, let me just read a few of them. Yeah, I was um, going to ask if you could share one uh, so we can get a feel for what it's. Uh... Did you say you were working on your social media platform? Is that what I heard you say? That's true. Yes. So that yeah. too. I'm uh, um, I'm working on promoting the book, and the social media is the main tool to do that, uh, at least yeah. for now, for me. Yes. Exactly. You're in the right place because Neil is a genius in social media. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Appreciate that. So uh, back to the the point. Yeah, let's share some of your poems. We're very interested in hearing one of your poems. Um, okay. So I would like to to read one uh, that's called the uh, the photo parties.
the photo parties, and it's on page one, 127 in the book. I used to have photo parties in my pre-Facebook days. When my friends and I traveled, we used to gather at a party and the traveler would share the pictures from the trip. When I came back from my trip to Paris, I threw a photo party at my place on a Saturday night. My friends came over, I connected my computer to a big screen and they showed off my Paris pictures over a glass of wine. We talked, we had a couple of drinks, we looked at the pictures. I gabbed about all the places that I saw in Paris while browsing through hundreds of pictures. My party favors to my friends were souvenirs from Paris. When my friends returned from their trip to Central America, they threw a photo party at their place. The mountains, the ocean, the beach, the, the ancient monuments, we all gathered in my friend's living room for drinks, for souvenirs and for photo browsing. The photo parties from trips and vacations were a great excuse for us to spend an entertaining Saturday night together and feel connected, stay close, talk to each other. We were looking forward to the photo parties just as much as the dinner or birthday parties. We no longer throw photo parties in our Facebook days. When I came back from my Caribbean trip, I dumped my vacation photos on Facebook and all my friends liked them. Some of them left comments, nice, looks like you had a great time. Yes, I did have a great time, but I didn't throw a photo party for my Caribbean vacation upon my return anymore. Instead of throwing a photo party, we now post our vacation photos on Facebook and all our friends can see and like them at once. Facebook replaced our photo parties. It also replaced our great Saturday nights, our getting together, feeling connected, staying close, talking to each other. I miss my photo parties from the pre-Facebook days. I miss the days when it was appropriate to invite your friends over to show them your vacation photos from places around the world. Oh, and that really brings a theme out about how Facebook is keeping that, eliminating that real personal connection. And what you guys are dealing with in Canada, where you really aren't able to go out and see people like you are in the United States, where a lot, pretty much everything's wide open now. I know restrictions yeah. are starting to be lifted, but Canada, you guys really went through it. And hopefully people now see how important it is to get together, then do everything virtually and on social media and that really gets people to think and understand things, right, Dave? Yeah. In fact, I'm, I must confess that I don't know anything about poetry. I hardly read poems. I mean, I know a poem when I hear it. What type of poetry would you call that? Does it have a name? Uh, yes. He, uh, this type of poetry you would call in three verse. What is and, it? Uh, three verse. Three, three verse? Three verse, yes. Three? It doesn't, it means that it doesn't necessarily rhyme. It can okay. rhyme or for the most part, it doesn't. Um, but um, so the poetry that I like to create is poetry that tells a story. And if you, if you ever get a chance to read my book, you would see that most of the poems are stories. Um, <laughs> Hey, I might, I might be a poet and I don't even know it. <laughs> yeah, see, there you go. So, so there's tons of different types of poetry. And you have to wow. go Google it. So go Google it. Go to Grammarly.com will be a good resource. And I also think that uh, Grammar Girl, who's a very famous, would talk about different forms of poetry. 
So back to Dave has his final question. It's a caregiving question. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, so I'm a caregiver. My wife had a stroke 25 years ago when we were living our lives, and it just threw our lives for a loop. I mean, it took a couple of years to get over it, the grief. Finally, we re reinvented ourselves, and my wife became her old self again and started doing things that she could do before. And um, I have to decline the call one second here. And so, are you still there? Yes, we are. Yep. And so I became Dave, the caregiver's caregiver. I started writing books. I started appearing on stages and I've done 51 TV shows and she's cooking, you know, putting on dinner parties all with one arm. She lost use of half her body. So she really only has one arm and one leg that works. But she is amazing. Like Martha Stewart, Wonder Woman makes normal people look like whiners and complainers. So my question to you, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get the word out that you know, you could become a, a caregiver instantly overnight without even realizing it. And um, have you ever um, come in touch with some caregivers or have you ever been a caregiver yourself? You know, I, I'd like to say that uh, it's inevitable. You're either going to become a caregiver or need a caregiver one day. Well, uh, finally that you ask, um, uh, I, I think this, uh, th there is a big chance that it becomes the experience of most of us at some point in time in our life. And um, to some, it's going to be the spouse that will need our caregiving, but to most of us, probably it's going to be our parents. So uh, that is this, my situation. Um, my mother passed away six years ago. Um, I lost her to, to heart disease and the book is uh, dedicated to my mother. In fact, I have a few of my poems written for my mother uh, and now it's my father. So um, uh, my, my sister and I share the caregiving uh, mm. for my father. Um, she lives close to, to dad and she takes care uh, with him on a daily basis. And uh, my support comes from outside the, the, the type of when, when my sister um, feels overwhelmed or when it is too much for her, then I step in with the, with helping both of them. So, um, the, to come back to your question, um, for me, it was with my parents. Um, my mother had, uh, battled her heart disease for a long time until she lost the battle. And, uh, although I wouldn't necessarily call myself a, a, a caregiver in the medical sense, the way how you probably mean it was for you and your wife, uh, but just the, the caring for your parents, that part, yes, I, uh, absolutely relate to that and it hits home for me. Um, and I think that's, that's an experience that is shared by many people. And yes, I, uh, um, um, it is my experience as well. It was with my mother and now to a certain degree with my father as well. Okay. Good for you. All right. And go to caregiverdave.com to find out for more information and Victoria, where can we find information on you? Um, on, uh, my Instagram. Um, you can find me as Victoria West and books with underscores in between the words or on Facebook. I have a page which is called uh, Writer Victoria West. So if you go on uh, Facebook and you search Writer Victoria West, it will pop up. Also, my book, Sunset in Toronto, 
is uh, available on Amazon uh, in the Kindle and print edition. And the, the same, if you just search, if you just search in the um, uh, in the box um, under books or under all departments, Victoria, West, Sunset, and Toronto, it will come up. All right. Well, we thank you for coming on. And Dave, another great uh, show. Thanks again, guys. And that was the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment. Guys, take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special edition of Freedom from the Addiction, Truth Just Below the Surface, the Neil Haley Show. I'm excited to welcome the program, Reverend Wynn Henderson, MD. Wynn, how are you? I'm doing good. And for all of the listeners out there today, it's a pleasure to have you listening to my show. My sincerest desire is for you to get something from it that will make your life richer, fuller, and safer. My name is Reverend Wynn Henderson. As an ordained Christian minister and a retired medical doctor, I have a dual perspective to bring you content to solve problems in your life. This podcast is the longest running single-hosted, spiritually-based radio internet talk show in America. It's been on the air for over 20 years. I bring you information about the disease of addiction, your purpose in life, and investigative reporting on truth just below the surface. Uh, my guest uh, today has been on the program many times in the past. Uh, it's Dr. Mark Hayden. He is a frontline uh, COVID doctor, a COVID researcher, and a COVID inventor. And if you want to find out more about Mark, go back in the archives and listen to his programs. Mark is also a student of history. He would have agreed with Winston Churchill in 1948 when he said, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. And uh, Mark learns from history. We're gonna be talking about war is money. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? Doing great, thank you. Okay, well, we discussed uh, the program today and you know uh, what we talked about. So tell our people about war is money and the various aspects of that. Okay. Thanks for the chance to speak. You know, first, I let the audience know that I am very proud of my father and my other family members that were members of the U.S. Armed Forces. My father was actually in the Vietnam War. He worked in infrared targeting, and he, uh, infrared targeting was fairly early then, and he would target the Viet Cong. That, even though he participated in bombing many Vietnamese, that does not affect my respect nor my love for my father. And certainly any, I have taken care of many, many veterans. Most of those veterans were always told at the time in which they were asked to work for the armed forces that it was about democracy and freedom. I respect those people who went off to fight believing in doc, uh, democracy and freedom. One of the things we have today recently is that we have the Oath Keepers, who many of which had gone off to foreign countries and fought for the U.S. Armed Forces. They had killed people believing they supported democracy and freedom. Then when they came back home, they saw that what they were getting is not exactly 
democracy and freedom. Then they were charged with sedition and they face decades of imprisonment if they're convicted for, for just going up to the Capitol uh, building and protesting. You know, the, uh, we have now an age of propaganda where our media since the 1995 has been tightly controlled by corporate media. There was a time in the United States when, when freedom of the press meant that anybody with a printing press could have access to many, many people. That's not been true for, for multiple decades. Now we live in an age when if it's Trump or if it's Ron Paul, if you say something that those in power do not want to hear, you're banned off Twitter, you're banned off YouTube. Now, COVID has been an eye-opener for most people because it has caused them to wake up and question, how much does my government really love me? Is my government telling me the truth? The best way to think about government, not just your own government, is to really realize that governments are about control of behavior. You can control behavior in several methods. You can control it with a gun and shoot people, or you can use money and try to use positive reinforcement. Now, in the United States, this, this, the title of this show is War is About Money. If you pull out your dollar bill, it says on the dollar bill, this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. That note is printed by the Federal Reserve, a private bank representing the interests of private people. You and I, as, as American citizens or in most of the free world, we will work our whole life. We will sell our assets, our services, our goods for dollars. And yet we will never know who the owners of the Federal Reserve are. And that's a private organization. We're not allowed to know who really controls the dollar. And in the end, it's the dollar that m will control most of the behavior around us in Western society. So what we see going on over there is a war between Ukraine and Russia. Now, for most people, they don't give a flip about Russia nor Ukraine. And to them, it was a meaningless, you're so busy for 99% of people just making your next payment, paying what your debts are. You don't have time to study world's finance. That's, that's not it. But really what happened is that oligarchs in the 1990s and in the late 80s began to take over Russia, as well as Ukraine, as well as the entire Soviet Union. Well, people ask, well, what's an oligarch? An oligarch is somebody who gets access to millions of dollars of international banking funds from select banks. So what they did, what they discovered during the Cold War was that the, the Soviet Union had a lot of nuclear weapons. They didn't want to attack them up front, but somebody came up with a very smart idea was let's just corrupt their leaders. Well, their leadership much of their leadership became dual citizens of both Israel as well as the United States. 
as they would travel outside the, the USSR, they were approached by international bankers who have made arrangements that if you do such and such, we can arrange big loans for you. You can have out, you can have bank accounts in Switzerland. You can do things, you can become far wealthier than you ever would have been if we can arrange for the downfall of the USSR. In the 1980s, we were all taught in the, in the U.S. that the Russia was destroyed by the Afghan war. The reality is far different. The leadership of the USSR became wealthy in a large part because they participated in the destruction of the Soviet economy. The assets became owned by foreign banks. Now, you can say, what? that sounds preposterous. How could foreigners own the assets of the USSR? We have evidence of that this year. When Biden goes to put sanctions on the Russians, the Russian central bank held almost half its assets in currency as well as gold outside the Russian territory. Now, certainly they had to be brain dead because anybody knows that if you go to war with people and the, and the asset, the gold or the currency is not in your territory, you may lose it. Why then was all $300 billion kept outside of Russia? Because that represented a large part of the foreign financing of the international bankers. These international bankers recognized that they did not want to lose control of that money. So they held it in foreign banks outside of Russia, but it was still used to purchase the assets inside of Russia. So that Russia and Ukraine became owned from the financing of the international bankers. And they set up, a, now the, the, Russian, the Russian people would have never tolerated a foreign owner if they knew who the foreign owner was. The same way when you work for a dollar, a dollar bill, it would bother you psychologically to know that the owner of that dollar bill might not be an American at all. He might be an international banker located far outside the U.S. You will never get to know who the owner is. The Russian people did not get to know who actually possessed the control of their industries, of their currency, of their central bank. So when the sanctions went in from Biden in the last month, half the assets were confiscated abroad because they weren't on Russian territory. Of course, you would expect that Putin, if he was truly patriotic, would have a trial of the guilty parties in Russia who had committed treason. There is no trial. There is no no uh, publication because Putin cannot admit that the oligarchs of Russia were financed from outside the country. Putin tolerated these oligarchs himself for the last 25 years. He would have to tell the Russian people, hey, guess what? You've lived in poverty while others grew rich off your labor of your hands. And he tolerated it as their country's leader. That's right. He did. But that's the way of the world. 